Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, October 19th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour, I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, what to do about obesity among military service members. Plus, the TSA is found to have some serious cybersecurity deficiencies. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, it usually takes the National Institute of Standards and Technology at least a few months to update its cybersecurity guidelines. But in response to a major vulnerability, NIST is looking to add a new control to federal cyber standards within just a few weeks. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the manager of NIST Security Engineering and Risk Management Group, Victoria Pilateri. We're issuing a patch release for 853. So we recognize the importance of both stability and agility in our guidance. And we want to be able to provide up-to-date guidance and frameworks in user-friendly and machine-readable format. This patch release using our new comment tool and our cybersecurity and privacy reference tool allows us to include minor changes that don't impact the technical comment. So it can just promote more machine readability of the data set helps us clean up a few editorial and grammatical errors that we might have caught along the way, and is helping us address a newly discovered vulnerability where we actually had a gap in the control. So, you know, historically, NIST has gone through, you know, long drafting periods and done a very, you know, 30, 60, 90 day public comment on our guidelines. Really, given the severity of this vulnerability, the time to act is now. So we've developed this really cool tool. It allows us to have better engagement with our user community. It allows users to provide feedback on the published controls anytime from the comfort of your own computer or mobile device. And it allows us to do an expedited comment period. So we're still doing our entire public comment period, but we've cut it down to two weeks. And we're doing this by just focusing on the one control we're making a substantive change to. So instead of having to go through the entire catalog of controls, trying to identify what's what's new, what's different, it's straight out in front of you. You click one link and you can see the proposed new control and the two new control enhancements. And you can provide comments back to NIST. Got it. All right. Yeah, I definitely want to dig into the kind of dynamic process here with, with the releases and the commenting and, and such. I, but I, I do want to take a step back and just talk about the, you know, I think you call it a pretty severe vulnerability that you wanted to patch here. Can you just explain what that is and how you are patching it with this release? Well, we're proposing one new control and two supporting control enhancements. In the past, I think, I guess it's been like a month and a half or so. Uh, there's been a vulnerability related to identity and access management systems. NIST realized that even in our really robust catalog of security and privacy controls, that we had an area that we could have gone into more detail and provided more guidance or control to help our entire user community manage this risk. So we're proposing to add one new control and two supporting control enhancements to the identification and authentication, the IA control family. This would be a new control, so we'd tack it onto the end, and it would be IA13, Identity Providers and Authorization Servers. So this would provide guidance, outcome-based guidance, to focus on how to better protect identity providers and authorization servers to manage user device and non-person entity identities, attributes, 
and access rights. So basically, we're looking to support better authentication and authorization decisions. The two control enhancements that we're proposing are focused on the protection of cryptographic keys in the context of identity providers and authorization servers, as well as the verification of access tokens and identity assertions. So we've seen a lot of identity and authentication misconfigurations and vulnerabilities crop up this past year, including the Microsoft incident, you know, over the summer that affected several federal agencies. Is that what we're getting at here with this patch release and the the vulnerabilities that you're referencing? So while we won't call out a specific vendor or implementation or instance, this broadly is an issue. And this was identified as a gap that we had in our control catalog. You know, we're doing a lot of work to improve our identity related guidance. And as that drafting team was working on their research, they they also brought this to our attention. So, you you know, there's no time like the present to to address this and leverage some of the really cool and innovative tools that NIST is coming out with to better you know promote our work, to better get engagement from our user community, and ultimately to better provide better cybersecurity and privacy resources for the community at large. And you know generally, how has 853 addressed these issues in the past, and what should folks know about these specific controls that are being proposed today at, at a high level? You know, is this going to be a difficult thing to implement or is this going to I assume this is going to flow pretty seamlessly into their, you know, NIST 853 implementations and how they can you know, address that issue going forward? Well, first and foremost, you know, we're just opening a public comment period on these this proposed control and the two control enhancements. So we're really looking forward to getting that broader feedback from the entire user community. You might see some changes between now and when we plan to issue this patch release in the November timeframe. But assuming this does move forward, you know, the first thing is we've decided to not include these controls in any control baseline, which means they wouldn't be, quote unquote, required right away. However, like the entire 853 catalog, these are good security and privacy outcomes that organizations can elect to select and implement if that helps them manage their risk. So we're not saying you have to do it, but it's it's good advice, right? (laughs) And yeah, we've talked about this expedited comment process and and how you're issuing this, you know, urgent patch release. You don't have to go through this really lengthy comment period, but there's still going to be that transparency with the comments and folks can can really dig into this. Can you talk about how that's a um, maybe a bit of a a new development? I don't know if it is a new development for NIST or, or specifically with 853. Is Is this something that you see being part of the process going forward to really address these issues as they crop up? So NIST has heard feedback from our user community that sometimes we're too slow to issue updates to our guidelines, and there's always an opportunity for improvement. So we heard that feedback, and we took some really big action. We've developed an online tool that allows our user community to submit comments on published controls anytime, 24-7 at your convenience. We will still hold public comment periods on the equivalent of draft publications 
that allowed our user community to provide feedback on controls or control enhancements or changes that we've proposed to the control catalog itself. That's Victoria Pilateri, manager of NIST Security Engineering and Risk Management Group, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, the TSA is found to have some serious cybersecurity deficiencies. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Agencies are supposed to protect their data systems from cybersecurity threats, especially those known as high-value asset systems. The Homeland Security Department Office of Inspector General looked at a high-value asset system operated by the Transportation Security Administration, and uh-oh, lots of missing pieces. Federal Drive host Tom Temin got the details from the Principal Deputy Inspector General Glenn Sklar and from the Acting Assistant IG for the Office of Audits, Craig Edelman. Glenn, we'll start with you. In general, high-value asset, these are subject to regular review for FISMA compliance, too, correct? That's what got you to look at the system in the first place? Indeed, that's correct. Tom, after the SolarWinds nationwide cyber attack in 2019, we really changed the way we look at DHS's cybersecurity, shifting our oversight away from compliance-based audits to more performance and technical-type reviews, including the Transportation Security Administration review we're here today to discuss. And this report is part of a series of reviews we're doing, looking across the entire Department of Homeland Security portfolio. So every component of DHS has high-value asset systems, and probably they have more than one, fair to say? Uh, That's correct. And we're really focused on the ones that present the potential greatest vulnerabilities, really trying to provide the best possible advice we can to DHS so they mitigate risk. And you picked one of several that are operated by TSA. Any particular reason for looking at that system? I imagine you can't tell us what's in there, but maybe you can. Craig? We cannot go into detail on what was in the system, but we can note that this is not just a high-value asset system. This is a Tier 1 high-value asset, which is designated by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So that means that it has a critical impact, not just to TSA, but to the entire nation. So this is an extremely important system with information that needs to be secured. Got it. I have a feeling, given the world news, this is probably more timely than we realized at the time. But again, won't pull from you, but we can guess what's probably in that system. Well, okay. so you looked at it in terms of what what cybersecurity controls were in place under the NIST guidance and under CISA guidance, essentially? That's correct. We looked at 10 different uh, control families under the NIST guidance, uh, and, we f- and we found that there were deficiencies in eight of those controls, some of them significant. Yeah, tell us more. The controls are configuration management, risk assessment, and things like that. Right. Supply chain risk management, access controls, planning, awareness and training, assessment, authorization and monitoring, and contingency planning all had deficiencies. So each one of those characteristics has to have specific controls in place. For example, I would think assessment, authorization, and monitoring means who can get in there and do administrative work on it. It's also constantly monitoring the system to ensure that it's secure. In some in some cases, if there are vulnerabilities identified in, in that particular control family, you're supposed to have a plan of action and milestones to address that vulnerability. However, we found that 
all of TSA's open plans for addressing those vulnerabilities were overdue. One of them hadn't been addressed and had been open for five years. Yeah, in fact, you have a, a list of them from Special Publication 853, kind of the Bible for cyber from NIST. And uh, I see a lot of red on there, which means that they have not done those things. What do you think the effect is of all of this? Does that mean the system is easily hacked, ultimately? That means that it there is a greater chance that an attack could occur. And if attack does occur, it's harder for TSA to respond to and recover from that cyber attack. So that means that not only could system be uh, inf- system information be lost, but it'll be harder to bring the system back up so that it's functioning and supporting the role that it supports. Got it. We're speaking with Craig Edelman. He is the acting assistant IG for the Office of Audits and with Glenn Sklar, the principal deputy inspector general, both from Homeland Security's OIG. Well, what happened when you told TSA about what you found here? It couldn't have been a surprise. Yeah, yeah Tom, we were actually pleased with the response we got and that they're incredibly responsive and move right in to correct the deficiencies. But we much rather have a situation where they find the problems rather than us. We really want DHS to be much more proactive and get in front of their inspector general rather than the reverse. So we are going to continue to do these types of reviews till we stop finding major deficiencies. And we've really changed the way we do these reviews, moving again away from more of a compliance-based review. It's much more technical testing, more of trust but verify, so that we actually are trying to uh, be pretty aggressive in terms of uh, what we can find and what we can offer the department in terms of solutions. Well, to do a technical assessment means you have to have some technical means of pressure testing the system. I mean, do you try to gain access as an administrator, for example, that kind of thing? Craig? For this project, we did not do penetration testing. We did conduct an assessment of the system, both the security controls that were in place, which we did find challenges with, along with vulnerabilities that we identified in the system. During our testing of the vulnerabilities, we identified almost 300 unique critical high vulnerabilities from the over 1,000 workstations and servers we tested. I want to note that CISA puts together a catalog of known exploited vulnerabilities. These are the vulnerabilities that should be addressed right away. And we found of the almost 300 vulnerabilities, 12 were in this catalog of vulnerabilities that have already been exploited. So these are serious concerns. We also found that during our testing, we couldn't reach 700 workstations. This is in addition to the 1,000 that we did test. And what we found was that TSA had not been providing patch updates to the 700 workstations between May 2022 and November 2022 when we conducted our field work. So during that time, CISA had put together 203 known exploited vulnerabilities, and TSA had not been able to patch these workstations to address any of those vulnerabilities. Wow. So that gets under the subject of risk assessment because they just it sounds like they didn't know what they hadn't done, basically. That's right. And if you don't do a good risk assessment, then everything else kind of falls out, like access controls and configuration management would derive after you have a good risk assessment, I would guess. That's what we found was that even in addition to these vulnerabilities that weren't being addressed, there were other issues down the line with the controls. Uh, For example, with the access controls, they couldn't provide an accurate list of system users. 
We also found that some people who had access to the system had already left the agency. These are contractors and federal employees. However, these inactive accounts had not been removed from the system. So, you know, obviously that's concerning. What's more concerning is that some of these were privileged accounts. Those, a privileged account user has the ability to make updates or security updates on the system, software updates, maybe changing passwords. So those accounts are of particular concern and should be protected. However, they remained with access to the system, even though they were inactive for long stretches of time. Wow. And what does supply chain risk management mean in the context of an operate of an ongoing system like this? That's a good question. As Glenn mentioned, we, we changed our approach a little bit um, with the solar winds attack and the solar winds attack occurred because there was an issue with the software's supply chain. So it's important to have a plan to ensure that your supply chain for building your technology is protected. And in this case, TSA did not have a plan to do so. Like you don't want an iCam or an identity and credential access management system from China, for example, as your iCam, that Correct. type of thing. Right. Exactly. All right. So you said TSA, though, is getting after it. But I guess the question is, they have a manager, they have a management problem. Probably if, if they were way behind on these details of this system, is that a systemic problem for TSA? Are you able to determine that, Glenn? Yes. So generally, we interface with the chief information officer for all of the department. And they've certainly been responsive and appreciative of what we found. And we are trying to propel them to move faster. It could potentially be funding issue. It could be the multitude of legacy systems at the department. Having been here uh, 20 years ago when the department was first formed, I can tell you there are hundreds of legacy systems, and many of them have been consolidated, but certainly not all. Glenn Sklar is Principal Deputy Inspector General at the Homeland Security Department. Craig Edelman is the Acting Assistant IG for the Office of Audits. We'll post this interview along with a link to their findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, heading towards the end of the year, how are Thrift Savings Plan investment returns looking? But first, what to do about obesity among military service members? It's The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on The Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Obesity is worsening as a military recruitment and readiness problem. Too many potential enlistees arrive at recruitment stations too fat. More than two-thirds of active-duty service members carry too much weight. Our next guest has studied this problem extensively and has some recommendations for improving it. She's the National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project, Courtney Manning, and she spoke with Federal Drive host Tom Temin. Briefly, how did you get into studying this particular issue, of all things? So I actually started my career as a nutritionist and consultant for the California and New York public health system as the educational contributor to a lot of different projects that evaluate school foods. So started kind of in reducing obesity for public schools, then eventually decided I needed to take on some harder problems as hard as that already is and start working in national security. So this has been a really exciting project that gets to blend a couple of my interests. 
Interesting, yes, because I guess if people are getting to be too much weight carrying as children, they're going to carry that to the point of life where they might be potential enlistees, and then the military has a problem here. So give us the scope of the problem, and how did you come up with the numbers? The finding of the numbers is the most interesting part to me as a data analyst. I think that starting out with solid numbers and tracking of this problem is key to finding solutions to solving it, right? And that's our also biggest problem with this research is that since 2017, the U.S. military has not reliably tracked obesity rates simply because not as many individuals who are a BMI plus 25, which is the signifying code for overweight, or BMI plus 30, which BMI is body mass index. Body mass index, correct, are, you know, 30 and above. Of course, the way that doctors in clinical settings diagnose obesity is that BMI of 30 in association with a number of different health symptoms. And that BMI of 30 is a level of overfat in the body that you really want to start evaluating for other health concerns like pulmonary embolisms, for example, strokes, heart attacks, all things that would be disastrous in the active duty. Right. You came up with a number of 68% of active Active duty service members have overweight or obesity. That's two thirds. Yeah, it's a significant problem. And the way that the military itself identifies overweight and obesity is a little bit different. They seem to have a unique way of presenting overweight applicants somewhere between the scale of 26 and 29 to give an extra generous allotment of body fat so that if you are someone who is incredibly fit, highly muscular, you won't necessarily be pegged as an overweight troop right away. So they have already been quite generous with their definition of these terms. But as far as our research is concerned, we're looking at those BMI values that the international community and doctors and healthcare professionals use. Sure. And you can carry a little extra weight and be highly fit. And you can also be skinny as a rail and not be fit. So it's not necessarily one-to-one problem, correct? I mean, fitness is what matters. And in military setting, I imagine endurance Oh, absolutely. And tests have been conducted extensively by the Department of Defense that demonstrate that people with a little extra weight, they can oftentimes lift and load bear. You know, we're thinking guys with 300 pound packs pretty easily. Whereas, unfortunately, the detriments of excess fat in the body, they overweigh the minor advantages in those specific settings for those individuals. So a lot of people who are highly fit, the kind of guys that you're probably thinking of when you're thinking of the active duty service, they could also be carrying excess fat because having fat in your body doesn't preclude the development of muscle, right? So you can have both. And it's interesting because when we do evaluate these troops in these super sophisticated body scanners that cost like thirty to $100,000 each, we're finding Finding that those bodybuilder type guys, they're really, really fit and they have excess fat. And that excess fat is causing them to have heart problems earlier in life, increased muscle strains and injuries, out of breath, shortness of breath. And that could be disastrous in a battlefield setting. What you really want is high VO2 max, that is the ability to process oxygen. Exactly. And that can be like severely limited in a setting where you are under very little sleep, right? Under extraordinary stress, which if we were to, God forbid, have some sort of full ground scale engagement abroad, we would want our troops to have that VO2. We would want to have the guys who can not only just lift something for a couple of seconds and then put it down, right? But to carry things long distance and hopefully not have to be carried from the battlefield. So the body mass index, the obesity question, exists in the larger context of what constitutes proper fitness for military work. 
Oh, absolutely. And the Department of Defense has all the resources and they have all of the authority and power both to collect this data and to implement change. So what we've noticed is that over the past few decades, as obesity has become an enormous problem, what we're seeing is not an increase in transparency and an increase in reporting of these numbers. We're actually seeing a decline. And that, especially since 2017, has become an enormous problem because when only about 7 to 30 percent of individuals who have that obese BMI, right, are actually being diagnosed with obesity, and then even fewer of them are receiving treatment. We're facing a problem where if you're just looking at obesity rates, you don't understand how big the problem is. You really have to look at those BMI rates. And those BMI rates are the ones that are being removed from all of these military reports that get sent to DOD stakeholders in Congress. We're speaking with Courtney Manning. She's National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project. And is the reason they're not collecting that data is they don't want to hurt people's feelings that they're big? Or what is it? So I'm not normally one to decry wokeism or to, you know, really take a stand on that specific issue. But in this case, there is significantly and increasingly a desire on behalf of commanders and military leaders to be more sensitive on the topic of obesity. And this has led to, we were talking earlier about kind of terminology and how to ensure that we're using correct terminology when we're referring to this problem. If people have obesity, that is a chronic disease and they need to receive treatment for it just because of the high correlation of that BMI over 30 with associated health conditions and comorbidities, right? But if you're telling guys, well, you're just a little big, right? You're not fat and you're having commanders who are responsible for referring these overweight military members to a doctor, they can decide on their own, I don't want to have this difficult conversation. I don't want to tell my guys who are already under a lot of pressure to perform and I'm already under a lot of pressure to retain right troops in my sure. unit, I might just not send them in for evaluation. I might think to myself, they look fine. They're lifting fine. That is not a good way to determine who is physically fit enough to be deployed. So you have a long list of recommendations then, not so much on how to get people to lose weight, but on how the military can get a handle on the issue. Yes, it's pretty solid, the science behind what helps people lose weight. And just recently, we've had a influx of really remarkable medical treatments that can help people lose weight. You know, Wigovi, Ozempic, some of these other ones that can really make a difference in these guys. But if they're not being diagnosed, if a doctor is never seeing them at any point, right, for obesity, they're never going to get the medical treatment that they need to lose weight. And that's where the problem starts. So you're saying the Defense Health Agency should promote and enforce awareness, diagnosis, and treatment of obesity as a chronic disease. Right. Because right now, let's say you go through a fitness test, right? Your commander's watching you run laps around the track. They are taking a note of your weight and height at that test. And what that information goes to right now is to an administrative authority that then determines whether that individual for one, could be separated from service, right? But of course, there are a few intermediary steps. They are given a test of physical fitness, and if they score 285 and above, regardless of how heavy they are, they can get an exemption, right? Then it's about, well, are they even a little overweight? Maybe we'll make an allowance. And then it's up to commander discretion. And at that point, the commander can think, I can fill out all this administrative paperwork to judge this person is too fat to serve, or I can 
not, right? Just let them go back in. My life is easy. Their life is easy. My retention numbers are good. They are good to serve. And if I decide that they are not fit to serve, they face administrative sanctions. So they can't go to advanced training opportunities. They can't get promoted. They can't have a variety of other privileges. And they're taken out of service and put into kind of this military fat camp, right, which is very stigmatizing for service members. They basically feel like they're being removed from their their peer organization. They're removed from their opportunities. And then they could be separated if they don't improve by six months, which is in a state right now where we're having this recruitment and retention crisis. We can't afford that. All right. And what other recommendations do you have besides DHA treating this in that certain manner, but basically confront it by measuring everyone? And then if they reach that level that is considered obese in body mass index, count them as such and then get them into counseling? Absolutely. And there are specific counselors who are absolutely like the best at this, right? You would think, oh, just because they're a doctor, they obviously know what to do. But we find this across the board, not just in the military, to be untrue. So military members are going to doctors, and if they don't meet pre-diabetes screening criteria, which over 50% of them do, right? But let's say they don't. They might not be diagnosed with obesity, even if they have an adipose tissue dysfunction or other like direct symptom of obesity in their body, right? now. Uh, And that's a problem because if you're treating this problem as one that is administrative or you're disregarding BMI and you're just looking for prediabetes or diabetes indicators, you're missing out on a lot of health conditions that could affect service members. And then those might not show up until you have a stroke, right? Or a heart attack in the middle of Kuwait or Iraq, you know, and, and that's a problem. So basically get rid of the fat shaming and stigma of it, get people objectively measured and then get them treatment for whatever it is that's causing the obesity. It could be an eating disorder. Sometimes it's a psychological component. Or sometimes, you know, it's three desserts and just take one. Exactly. And you make it sound simple because it should be simple, right? That's exactly how it should be. If you have that BMI of over 30, the correlated health conditions are so severe in the body that you really need to get checked out. And we've heard from people from all sorts of the spectrum politically saying, well, there are certain cultural problems with BMI. And the American Medical Association has actually come out and said that the BMI system is racist, right? Simply because not every person from every background stores fat in the same way. And not all of those things can contribute to the same exact health problems in the same populations. Courtney Manning is National Security Research Fellow at the American Security Project. We'll post this interview along with a link to her study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, heading towards the end of the year, how are Thrift Savings Plan investment returns looking? It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. With the third quarter of 2023 wrapped up, TSP returns did not look quite as solid as they did last time. To get a sense of what that means and what investors should consider, Federal Drive host Tom Temin got an update from certified financial planner Art Stein. And Arthur, what looked like a good market in the earlier part of the year seems to have slipped a little bit in the third quarter just concluded for the TSP returns. Yeah, for the stock funds, Tom, it was, you know, third quarter was bad. All three of the TSP stock funds declined three to five percent, which is, you know, a lot for just a three month period. But over longer periods of time, of course, we still have very mixed performance. But year to date, the stock funds have been good. They're positive. 
have very good returns. If you want to look since January of 2022, then the stock funds are negative. But since January 2020, which to me is the COVID period, you know, it was January starts out before COVID hit the United States and affected us financially, economically, and of course, personally. But the C funds up 40% since then, the S fund 19%, the I fund 10%. So in that very tumultuous period, stocks have done well. Now, the problem has been the bond fund, the F fund. Not the G fund, which is short-term bonds, but the F fund, uh, which is corporate and government bonds, is negative over all those periods. Like, it's down 9% since January of 2020. And, of course, that is probably the worst bond market performance maybe ever, you know, to have bonds be negative. They're negative this year, then they've had negative returns three years in a row. I think that I'm correct in saying that that is unprecedented. It has never happened before. But government bonds are one thing. Corporate bonds are something else entirely, in a sense. But we're not talking, remember, about the G fund, which is all short-term government bonds. And really, Tom, it's more like a savings account, you know, because Even short-term government bonds normally in the private sector fluctuate in value, but the G fund does not. The F fund does. It's down because the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates. But those bonds, you know, even the corporate bonds, it doesn't mean they're not going to pay off. And it certainly doesn't mean that they're not paying interest, which they continue to do. And as the price of the bonds goes down, the dollar amount of the interest does not go down. So they become quite an attractive investment. So right now, the interest being paid by the bonds in the F fund is about 3% of the total value of the F fund. It's what we call a 3% yield. And it means that people who are buying the F fund now, you know, are getting a very good return for something that has a potential to increase in value quite a bit if interest rates stabilize and especially if interest rates go down. So this is the kind of problem that all investors have, which is, gee, stocks have historically the best return, but they're very volatile. They go up and down. And now bonds, which historically are much less volatile, which tended not go down very much and certainly not for very long periods of time, all of a sudden, you know, they're not doing as well. To me, that's a kind of time when you want to be investing in these investments. Yeah. So to deal with the volatility, in some ways, it's the eternal lesson. You have to balance cash, bonds and stocks, right? And nothing essentially Absolutely. new here. So, you know, since January of 2020, as I mentioned, the F fund the intermediate term bond fund is down 9%. Well, a lot of people will look towards the G fund, which is up 9% over the same period. And, you know, that looks pretty good. But I would also point out that inflation over that same time period is up about 19%. So for people who invested in the G fund, they've lost a lot of purchasing power even though the G fund is increase in value, and that's not even taking into account taxes. So yeah, the G fund looks better than the F fund right now, but as a long-term investment, historically, 
when you factor in taxes and inflation, the purchasing power of the G fund has gone down quite a bit. And even the F fund has lost purchasing power. It's really only the stock funds, especially the C fund and even the S fund, that have done well enough to increase purchasing power over that period of time for investors who are willing to put up with the fluctuations in value. We're speaking with certified financial planner Arthur Stein of Arthur Stein Financial. So then, again, an eternal lesson is the sheer return raw number doesn't give you everything you need to know to decide whether for retirement you are doing the best for yourself financially. You have to take into account the tax rates, the yields. The inflation rate and, you know, what historically has been the best long-term investment But then you need to think about, you know, how much money you need to spend in the short term and in the long term. I mean, for someone who's a retiree, uh, you know, if they're taking out $50,000 a year to live on to supplement, say, their FERS annuity, having money in the G fund that they don't have to worry about, say, $100,000, two years worth of expenses, I mean, that would certainly make sense because you don't want to have to worry about how you're going to get money out for those short-term needs. But for your long-term needs, someone retires at 65, they could easily live 30 years in retirement. So they also need to think about, well, where am I going to get the money 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 30 years from now that I need to supplement my FERS annuity and Social Security, of course. If that money's been invested in the G fund, the purchasing power would have declined dramatically If it was invested in stocks, you know, based upon historical performance, they have a very good chance of having seen an increase in purchasing power. Right. So then your overall advice for people that are worried about all of this volatility and, you know, interest rates, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, there are issues in the world, too, that could be affecting stocks and bonds and, you know, investor confidence and so forth. What should people be doing now? Well, I think, you know, if you're working, you should be continuing to invest. And if you're worried about, say, the bond markets being down or the future of the economy, maybe continue to work a few more years than you planned on. I mean, people don't mention it, but one of the great advantages of working for the government is there's no forced retirement for most positions. There is, I realize, for some positions, but not for most positions. But you also need to think about what is a good long-term investment. And, you know, I see people who panic and they pull all their money out of the stock funds and stick it all into the G fund and then just leave it there forever and then do another mistake, which is that their biweekly investments all go into the G fund too. Well, don't do that. You can be much more aggressive with your biweekly investments than your current allocation. And if you are investing like that bi-weekly and the markets go down, that's a good thing for you because you're buying. And of course, you're just putting in a much smaller amount of money every two weeks. So, you know, if that declines, I mean, you're just much better off. But being too conservative, having too high a percentage of your investments in either or both of the bond funds really makes it much harder to generate the amount of assets that many of us are going to need for retirement. 
certified financial planner Art Stein. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Friday is the end of the beginning for the General Services Administration's years-long effort to develop the OASIS Plus Professional Services contract. After two years of planning, meetings, feedback, and answering almost 900 questions about the final solicitations, vendors' bids are due. Tiffany Hickson is GSA's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the Federal Acquisition Service. She tells Federal News Network's Executive Editor Jason Miller about why she is cautiously optimistic about moving forward into source selection for Oasis Plus. Friday is when proposals are due and we do not plan on extending the proposal due date. And I'd like to remind those that may not be participating this time around or find out about the opportunity later is that it's not a one and done. Once we get done with the initial source selections for Oasis Plus, we will be reopening the solicitations and plan to leave those open for most of uh, the program's life cycle. So that's a pretty unique feature of this IDIQ contract. And I'm not really sure that message has really gotten out completely. Um, So I do like to remind our industry partners or really down the road for those new companies, right, that are coming into the federal market, that all was not lost uh, once we got through the initial source selection for uh, Oasis Plus. But back to big week. Uh, Everyone has worked really hard. And when I mean everyone, I mean not just my team, but also uh, industry, starting with the working group. There was a special working group stood up to provide us with feedback um, over the last two years from ACT IAC that was led by Kim Pack. And there was a really a lot of good debate and feedback that was provided to us uh, in terms of the acquisition strategy. And we took most of uh, that, those recommendations. There were um, a couple of recommendations in particular related to how the contract was structured uh, vis-a-vis small business and unrestricted businesses and how we were going to tee that up. I think we ended up picking a strategy that reflected at least half the group's recommendations. And I think that was really the small business group side of the house, their recommendations. We also, over the last two years, we have had hundreds of uh, industry and agency stakeholder engagements, workshops, one-on-one discussions, briefings with frontline people, with senior leaders across government and standing up um, the program, uh, both in terms of how the acquisition strategy was structured, but how we're going to manage it post-award. We've published 23 program updates, two draft RFPs. We had three uh, industry days with probably more than 3,000 participants in each one of those industry days. We issued six requests for proposals. We've had lots of survey feedback. We issued a number of surveys and got feedback through those channels. And actually, we answered more than 1,900 uh, questions between our drafts and the final RFPs. We've had office hours, training sessions in terms of how to use our uh, offer management to our proposal management tool. And just to round it out, we've also had solicitation protests. So it has not (laughs) been boring and industry has been actively engaged uh, through all of those phases of the procurement cycle to get us to where we're at this week. 
Well, I think that's good news that uh, there's no plans to extend it. And I know we still have a couple of days. So uh, Tiffany, we'll, we'll leave it. Knock on wood, we'll, right? we'll leave you exactly that, that ability to change your mind just in case. Uh, let's, but let's talk about two things that, that I think you, you touched upon that folks may want to know. When you uh, talk about all those questions, and I, I think I counted it over, well over 800 questions. You said mm-hmm. you answered over 1,900 questions for the life of this mm-hmm. uh, effort so far. Anything stand out to you about the questions you've received from industry or around the final RFPs? Is there any trends you would point to? I think there were a couple of themes as we got through the acquisition lifecycle. One is I think there is still a lot, even for us, a lot of confusion around how we evaluate joint ventures, small business teams who are coming together as primes as part of the source selection process. And so we had a lot of questions in that space. If you're coming in as a small business team with primes, how does their experience count, right, against our evaluation criteria? We had, even in terms of our JV language, we thought we got that right. Then there was a court of federal claims case um, that was related to a different procurement that GSA was running that impacted the language that we had in our initial solicitation or draft solicitation uh, that we had to update. The judge provided us with some feedback. We're like, oh, okay, well, let's go back and nuance that based on uh, the judge's findings in, in that case. So we've had a lot of questions in that space. And how do we structure our proposal management tool right to reflect all of that complexity to allow for um, whether it's a, a JV, non-mentor, protege, mentee, protege, just standalone JVs, small business teams, like how do you set all that up in an online tool so everyone can claim the credit that they're due? A lot of complexity in that space for us and for industry. And, and I think after slogging through this, right, together over the summer, we're at the, at the right place. But that, I would say, is primarily where we've had a lot of discussions. Um, also, I think because this procurement is taking a slightly different approach than other um, GWACs and MACs in government, I think there it's just been hard for industry, I think, to understand, like, hey, this is not a, a traditional best value trade-off. It is here are the technical requirements that if you meet those technical requirements and you have a fair and reasonable price, you can be selected along with being responsible and those types of things. You can be selected for an award. We are not capping the number of awards. And I think um, that's a huge differentiator between uh, this program and others. It's really probably a test for GSA. But I think for industry, I think it's been hard for them to go, oh, yeah, that's a thing. Right. I need to focus on making sure that I'm showing that I'm qualified or a company is qualified or our team is qualified. I don't need to worry about uh, competition from another company uh, in that kind of way. Right. Um, so I think we spent most of our time focused in those two areas. The two things I just want to touch upon real quick. Uh, one is the symphony tool. You mentioned that as a proposal tool. And, and um, there was a recent uh, lack of a better word, we'll put this in quotes, incident uh, around mm-hmm. uh, Symphony. I want to give you some time to talk about that because I think I, I got a copy of the email that was sent out to people using Symphony, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of, whoa, what's this mean? And then then soon after that, uh, which, is, which is the question I asked GSA as well, was the delay in proposals due to this problem, this potential cyber or data incident. So catch us up on what's going on. The security incident didn't have anything to do with the extension of the proposal due date. For Oasis Plus, 
there was a way that companies could get credit and it was kind of a, a niche way that they could get credit depending on how they were positioned. And we didn't have a place in Symphony for companies to put in like, hey, we want to take advantage of getting a point, right, for our technical experience in this area. So we actually had to update the software to allow for companies to take that credit. And like I said, it was just one way that you could get credit from a technical perspective. So we actually had to extend the proposal due date to allow us to build that into the tool so companies could then come in and get credit. And when you change software, right, you got to change it, you got to do the code, you got to do the testing, there's security stuff, right? So it took us a couple of weeks to get through that. And then we wanted to give industry time to be able to, to take advantage of that if that's what they wanted to do. We had Yes, we have lots of offers already coming in, so we can see that that is is going well. Uh, the security incident that happened was reported to us by a potential offerer um, that felt that there was a security vulnerability in the tool. And clearly, we take that pretty seriously. We're in the middle of a source election. And so we immediately you know, talked to our CISO and got our CIO and that team uh, involved in looking at what that report said. We did a deep dive with our software provider, along with our IT security experts. And we actually just finished the, the final. We did an initial review, actually didn't see any breach of data at all that we could see in the system. And um, that was based on logs, records, you know, all the good things that happen in a well-rounded and secure tool. <laughs> so that was kind of an initial uh, relief. So we continued to leave the tool open. There was a small vulnerability in particular for, it was actually government account managers. So we close that vulnerability. And right now, if you're going to go in and set up uh, an account, our help desk will actually reach out to you um, and ask for some additional validation, verific identity verification information to make sure that you are who you say who you are um, before we will give you an account. Tiffany Hickson, GSA's Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the Federal Acquisition Service, speaking at a recent ACT-IAC event moderated by Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, X, and LinkedIn. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. <laughs>